We are in, once again, the book of Philippians, the epistle of joy. We're calling this series Gospel Joy. Because real joy is found in Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. Today we're looking at chapter 1. We're back in chapter 1. We're going to wrap it up. Verses 27 through 30. And I will read to you from the ESV, chapters 1, verse 27 through 30 of Philippians. Bible's in the back if you need one. Uh, you could borrow it or take it with you if you don't have one. We certainly want to make sure you have the Holy Scripture with you. So chapter 1, verse 27, four verses. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27 through verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord, the infallible, inspired, authoritative word from God. Paul writes, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Inspired by men. Inspired by God. Written by men. So, we're in Philippians 1. Again, just quickly, you remember Acts 16 is where we see Paul on a second missionary journey. He's, he's forbidden by the Holy Spirit to continue to preach the gospel in Asia. And while in Troas, he's summoned uh, by a man who, in a vision, to come to Macedonia, to, to, to take that trip into Europe. And he finds himself in the city of Philippi, preaching the gospel. Of course, Paul obeyed the vision. God tells him to go, he goes. And while in Philippi, God opens the heart of Lydia. Remember, a wealthy woman, she receives the gospel, her household, uh, both her and her household get baptized. Next, Jesus sets free a a demon-possessed girl. Her master is not happy about it, has Paul, at least Paul, beaten with rods and thrown into jail. And there's Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, singing unto the Lord. And, And the jailer hears it, and he gets converted He believes the gospel, him and his household, they believe, and they too are baptized. Just a plug-in. Notice that, believe and be baptized. And now ten years later, Paul's in house arrest under Roman incarceration. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day and receives this gift from Epaphrodites, who came from the Philippian church, who's serving Paul, loving Paul, and giving him a, a gift that was needed to, to actually live, Paul in prison, even though he's incarcerated under house arrest, chained to a guard, uh, he could not eat. They would not feed him. So he needed help to stay alive. And, and Epaphrodites brings that to him. And this, and this little church of Philippi has made such an impact on Paul. And made such an impact on, on the gospel and declaring the gospel, the mission of God and spreading the good news. And Paul loves this church and this church loves Paul. And he begins this letter by being thankful for them. And he reminds them of his never-ending prayer with joy. Verse 4. He says, because of our partnership, this joint participation, this this common purpose and activity in demonstrating, declaring the gospel, and he prays for them and brings them joy. In verses 12 through 18, Paul lets them know about his imprisonment, imprisonment 
and how with joy the, 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 the actual suffering and imprisonment has called the gospel, has caused the gospel to advance, even in suffering. Many people are being saved. Many, many brothers are being bold in the preaching of the gospel. And then last week, verses 19 through 26, Paul moves from his present rejoicing to his future rejoicing, if you remember from last week. He's counting on the prayers of, of God's people and the power of the Holy Spirit for his vindication. He says, I look, I look forward to seeing you, helping you, coming alongside you in the progress and joy of the faith. And it became apparent last week that the central thought and focus and, and purpose of Paul's life was for Christ to be magnified so that people will see the beauty and glory of Christ, whether, whether it's by life or by death. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether by life or by death. For me, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet Paul goes on to write in verses 22 of chapter 1 through verse 26 that although he wanted to be with Jesus and the joy of eternity, he was going to stick around a little bit longer. He was going to postpone that ultimate joy of being with Christ for the joy of ministry, for the joy of discipleship, to make disciples who make disciples as a partner together in the advancement of the gospel. That was verses 19 through 26. Now in verse 27, our text this morning, things change a little bit. There's a little bit of a shift of direction Paul goes more, moves from, from information to exhortation, from more of an autobiographical nature to more of a parental care and parental appeal. That's the shift that's happening. And, 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 and the outline for today is very simple. There's, there's, this, there's this big idea about conducting yourselves as worthy citizens. We'll get into that in a minute. And how are we to do that? How are we to live we are to do it in three ways. We are to stand firm together, standing firm together, striving in faith together, and suffering well together. So one main point, three subpoints: standing, striving, and suffering, all the verbs in, all the, the verbs in this, this text. So again, change of direction, more of an exhortation than information. So that's where we are. So look with me to, to verse 27, the first part of it anyway. Only, Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you have an NIV, it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you have a New American standard, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word only, or whatever you have in your, whatever in NIV, or only in ESV and NAS, can be translated alone. It's a very strong word. It has this idea of only and always. It's emphatic in, in, in the Greek. It's, it's the beginning of a long sentence. Actually, this is one long sentence. Verse 27 through 30 is one long sentence in the Greek, and it's the very first word. One commentator writes this. The word only introduces an admonition like lifting a warning finger, end quote. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Always, alone, always, whether I'm with you, or absence, whether I'm there or I'm not there, 
always remember this one thing, this one essential thing, the, the bottom line. Have you ever gone out, parents? You're leaving maybe for a couple of days, and you're going to talk to your teenage kids. Or maybe you're a little older than a teenager, or early 20s, and you remember your parents saying, listen, we're going for a couple of days. Do not, <laughs> under any circumstances, have a party in this house. Really, like, I don't care whatever you do. I'm not here. Do not bring anybody into this house, right? That's what Paul is saying. Whatever happens, whether I, whether, whether I come to you or not, only let your conduct, I like that word better, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word manner of life or conduct is an interesting Greek word. I'm not a Greek scholar. I've got plenty of tools to help me. It comes from the word polis, which is, in, is in the noun in the, in the Greek, and it has with it this idea of, of the city, metropolitan, polis, metropolitan, or we get like Minneapolis or in, uh, Indianapolis. It's also a word where we get our word, ready? Politics. Not that anybody has that on their mind today. <laughs> Greek verb, the affairs of the city. So what Paul is saying is live as citizens. He's talking about citizenship. It, it is not only the manner or conduct of your life, but the public duties entrusted upon a, a, a member of, of a society, of a culture, of a city. Public duties of a good citizen whose, uh, whose citizenship is seen in the way in which they conduct their lives. Does that make sense? Paul will say in chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, now think back with me a few weeks ago when we talked about, when the first sermon we preached, about the city of Philippi. We said that the city of Philippi had become a Roman colony. It was a, a place, there were several wars, there was a civil war that took place, and after the civil war, many of the Roman soldiers settled down in Philippi. And because of that, they were granted citizenship, Roman citizenship, in this city that's 800 miles away from Rome, which was the, you know, the, 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 the center of life and, and, and the reigning government. And they were Roman citizens, even though they were 800 miles away. They, they, were, they, they, they felt the pride of citizenship. They're, they're Roman represented, they, they represented Rome, some eight, again, some 800 miles away. I think Paul is playing on these words. So when Paul wrote to the Philippian church that they should conduct themselves as good citizens, he wasn't saying, listen, don't be a bad citizen of Rome. He's playing on that word and saying, no, you need to be a good citizen of heaven. You are to take that, that, that sense of pride in your earthly citizenship and see it from a biblical worldview, that same kind of pride and joy and, yes, I'm a Roman citizen, and say, no, you're a citizen ultimately of heaven, of heaven. Be good citizens, worthy of the gospel. 
Paul knew how proud the Philippians were of their earthly citizenship. He knew that they allowed it to affect not only the laws of the city, but their social customs and, and the daily conduct of their lives. How much more then were they to be good heavenly citizens and how that should affect their conduct? Paul is exhorting them to live in such a way that it, that it demonstrates who they really belong to. During the reign of Alexander the Great, who was actually the son of Philip II of Macedon and the founder of Philippi, there's a story that says there was a young man in, in the army of Alexander the Great, but he was a coward. They brought this young man before Alexander the Great, this mighty man of war, and, and, and um, Alexander said to him, what is your name? And the young man said very softly, Alexander. And Alexander the Great replied, young man, change your name or change your conduct. In other words, as confessing followers of Jesus Christ, we are commanded to act in such a way that broadcasts the reality that our citizenship is from another place. We're told to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that they had another citizenship of a much greater value. Paul knew that no matter how much no matter how much difficulty they face, we face, for the cause of Christ, that we are to conduct ourselves and that our conduct in the midst of conflict is what really counts. Not so much what we say, it's what we do. Now, <laughs> we did not pick this text. That's why I love expository preaching. We did not pick this text to live as good citizens the Sunday after election. It's here. So let me carefully but clearly just say, I'm as patriotic as the rest of you in this room. I am. But as followers of Christ, as the church, the body of Christ, believers in Christ, who live ultimately for the glory of God, as people see our lives, are they reminded of the kingdom of God or the kingdoms of this world? Are we living, we, me included, are we living, are we behaving in such a way that we resemble King Jesus and our citizenship with him or the citizenship which we enjoy in America? Where is our ultimate hope? Who is our ultimate hope? Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, I get that. But render to God, Paul, uh, Jesus says, that which belongs to God, and that is our very lives. Our love, life, humility, and other values of the kingdom should be on display. Not only in the way we talk, in the way we tweet, in our Facebook posts. Just as Roman citizens enjoyed certain privileges and responsibilities, so do kingdom children. Citizens of the kingdom, actually a greater privilege and a greater responsibility to act and to conduct ourselves worthy of Jesus Christ and our citizenship there. We have this incredible privilege of being part of the kingdom of God. And we have the awesome responsibility of living out the gospel and making the gospel known. And we are always to remember, this is not our home. This is not our home. Our ultimate hope is not in what happens here or anywhere in the world. 
Our ultimate hope is the empty grave and the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom where he alone will reign in righteousness. To live worthy of the gospel doesn't mean that we are to live worthy in a sense of being uh, perfect as somehow we work in such a way that we are worth living in that kingdom. It's not about what it's not about who we are and our value. It has to do with how we live our lives. Certainly not perfect. We don't do that. Our moralism and our, our good deeds don't make us worth, give us worth in sense of our salvation. What he means here is that believers ought to live differently because of the grace. Because of the grace they've received. When we believe, we become children of God, heirs of the promise, members of the body of Christ, and therefore we should Live in such a way. We are bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus, and therefore we are to live reflecting love and humility, patience and, and peacefulness and gratitude to God in every aspect of our lives. I think it was Dr. Neil Anderson who said, it's not who you are that determines what you do. It's what you do. No, it's, what you, it's not what you do that determines who you are. It's not what you do that determines who you are. It's who you are that determines what you do. We are children of God by grace alone and by faith alone in Christ alone. And we are to live our lives with, 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 with not only conducting our lives that way, but we are also to live and reflect that relationship with the Lord, that we're leaning on him. We're trusting in his grace and his mercy. We're, we're not leaning on our own righteousness, our own goodness. There's nothing we can do. We're, we're resting completely and solely on the grace of God. As citizens of heaven, we should live in such a way, not perfect, but consistent, in such a way that shows forth our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the application, as we mentioned, I mentioned a few already, but we need to think about that as we move forward over the next, especially over the next few weeks. Our ultimate hope, where is it? It's in our God. And what does that look like? Well, he gives us three, couple, three things. One, first, is standing firm together. Again, verse 27, let your conduct, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, a citizenship worthy of the gospel. So whether I come and see or I'm absent, I may hear that you're what? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul says, this is, this is what I hope to see, this is what I hope to hear about this church that I planted, that I love. And the word standing firm is a, is a, is a, is a word that comes from the military. It means to, to stand unflinched, encouraged, steadfastness. It's a word where a soldier is standing in his post, where he's supposed to be. And when a battle is raging against him, he's not moving. He's standing firm in his position. He is standing firm in his focus. No matter how bad the battle gets, he's standing firm. 2 Timothy 2.4, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy this, No soldier gets entangled in, civil, in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Steadfastness. And this idea he's telling the church is to remain firm to remain steadfast in opposition, in, in, in the opposition attacks upon the gospel, that we must live worthy of the gospel together as good soldiers on mission as, gospel advance, as we advance the gospel. Remember, Paul knew firsthand what it was like to be attacked. Paul knew, 
And, and notice what our text tells us. He says, yes, you, you need to be resolute. You need to be firm and, 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 and standing firm, but we need to do it together. Right? That's, what the, that's the word you, only uh, I may hear of you. It's plural. He's talking to the church. That you together as a church are standing firm in, in one spirit and one mind. Steadfast, grounded in unity. And Paul uses this term together, spirit and mind. I don't think, I don't think he means the Holy Spirit. I think he's talking about the inner person. And I think he uses both to convey the idea that, that we are to, to remain steadfast and it, it kind of heightens the idea of Christian unity standing together as a people with the in, everything in us in the sphere of our minds our thoughts our inf- uh, uh, affections standing firm united in their thinking united in their love for Christ one soul one mind one spirit no division as I was reading um this text, and like I said, it's from a military, uh, a word that's taken from the military. Um, I read somewhere that the Roman soldiers, when they went into battle, they would stand shoulder to shoulder, and their, their armor, their, their shield, they would, they, would, they would close their shield together like this, shield upon shield, and they would make, it would look like one giant shield as they went into battle. That, that's the unity that Paul is talking about. That's the unity. And the unity is of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. It, it, it's not about age. It's not about economic class or, or preferences, political agendas. It's the gospel. In fact, if, we'll never maintain unity here at King Chapel or any other church if we just think it's just going to happen. It's not just going to happen. The way to get and keep and maintain unity is to share a common life, a common focus, a common goal, a common objective. His name is Jesus. And it's his mission to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. I've said this before. In many ways, we don't create unity. We join it or we join him. His name is Jesus. As we share in his commonness, his spirit, his life, his union, and his mission, We'll have unity. And unity around the gospel is very important. Very important. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, we went through that book several years ago. But one of the things that struck me when we went through that book, I mean, that, they, listen, they had so many problems in the Corinthian church. You ever hear someone say, you know, I want to go back to the first century church. I'm like, not Corinth, you don't. They had all kinds of problems in that church. Sexual sin, idolatry, false worship, abusing spiritual gifts, even abusing the Lord's Supper, communion. But the very first thing Paul addresses in his letter, he had a thousand things he could have said, but the very first thing that Paul addresses in his letter is unity. Is unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He goes on to say, some of you say, I'm for this guy, I'm for that guy. Like, there's no unity. And for Paul, that was the most important thing and the very first thing he says to the church. It's so important that when Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, as the disciples had finished their 
uh, uh, their, their, their meal together, the Passover, Jesus prays. And Jesus has this high priestly prayer where we hear Jesus speaking to the Father. What a beautiful scripture, John 17. And Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, his followers. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given them, which you have given me, excuse me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Stand firm. Be united, but you be united with a purpose, striving in faith together. That I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul first uses this this picture, this illustration from the military. Now he switches. He uses this illustration. This word comes from the athletic games. Very prevalent in in Paul's day. He says, stand firm and strive together in the gospel. That word, strive together, has, you'll hear it when I say it, athleo, where we get our word athletic, and the word son, which is the prefix, which, which means together. So striving athletics together. We could say that he was, he, Paul was saying to strive together as athletes, as a team for the faith of the gospel. The church is to act like a team cooperating with one another for the purposes of advancing the gospel. In that day, um, the word was used often for wrestling, for the, for the sport of wrestling. Now, I wrestled in, in uh, junior high and high school, and the way we think of wrestling, one person goes out to the mat, but in those days, the whole team would go. I don't know what that might look like with 40 guys wrestling everybody, but that's what they did. They, they had this, this united front Think of a think of a, of a football team, right? You think of a, you think of the the linemen. They got like one purpose to block or to to make a way for the for the running back or to protect the quarterback. They're they're unified together. They're they're part of a team. Everyone has to do their part. I mentioned my love for cross country. One of our daughters uh, ran cross country back in high school and college. And although, you know, she ran for track and she ran for cross country, the different sports, uh, very much so. Uh, track is an individual sport. Cross country is a, is a team sport. And the first five who cross the finish line first uh, takes the win. Uh, it's a very interesting. In fact, before the race, I mentioned this before, but I'll just say it again. Before the race, the team would get together and they would walk the track just to kind of see the obstacles together and kind of talk with one another, encourage one another, just to, to walk through and to see where, where the pitfalls might be, where they need to be careful. It's a very much a, a unity, a, a, a team sport. The whole team is contributing. So it is with the church. We advance the gospel side by side, working together, contending together, laboring together. Remember, Battles are going to come. They came then, they're going to come today. Conflicts will come. And, and when you think of opposition to the gospel, when you think of, of suffering for the truth of the gospel, I hope you have in mind, like Paul does, this, this military person standing firm and this person who is involved with, with sports pressing on, right? With tenacity and, and uh, you've got an athlete and you've got a soldier, you've got someone who's persevering. That's why athletes practice. If anybody's been involved with sports, you know, you practice every day. You're practicing, you're practicing. Why? Because the goal is worth it, right? You want to win. 
You want, you want to beat your, your, your PR, your, your, your personal record. You want, you want to exceed in what you're doing. That's the goal. That's the prize. And you press on and you work hard so that you win that prize. How much more is Christ worth it? Contending faithfully because of the gospel. And just like a team, yeah, there's going to be sweat and tears, man, together for the gospel. And you know, when it says here in our text, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, what does that mean, for the faith? What is the faith of the gospel? Jude puts it this way. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is he talking about? He's talking about Christian teaching, doctrine, the, the apostles' teaching that were handed down from Jesus. He's talking about the Word of God, that, that special revelation of God in Scripture that the apostles preach. We're to cling to that which was delivered to us, the Scriptures handed down by the apostles and prophets. The church is called, therefore, to proclaim the gospel, to preach the word, the faith, as team, as athletes, to, to come together for a common goal in persevering and proclaiming the gospel to a world that's hostile to the gospel, as we were. Nothing like being part of a church, and I've enjoyed our time here together, and I, I pray God will give us many more years together in defending and contending the gospel. Don't be a lone ranger. Many, many, many have fallen for trying to do this on their own. Don't be a lone ranger. Secret agent running off all by yourself thinking you can do it. Be part of a team. Pray, give, go, encourage, invest, support. Be a team member, be a soldier, be an athlete. Look at verse 28. And therefore, or and not, striving by by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in any way in anything by your opponents, don't be frightened. This being, declaring and demonstrating the gospel is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. Frightened is a word that's used of a horse to be startled. Startled or spooked. Describes panic. A panic reaction. Paul says, don't panic. Keep your head. You're a citizen of, of heaven. God is in control. Don't be intimidated by the adversities or, or the adversaries of the gospel. Right? In chapter 1, verse 14, he tells them, listen, I am, I am in prison, but people are preaching the gospel. I give God praise for that. He says, whether in all things I'm going to be bold for the gospel, the life or death, I, I pray that my, my whole life will be an exaltation, a magnifier to, to Christ. And family, we live in a time and a culture that's hostile against the Scripture and against the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's ever a time we need to stand up against a world that has embraced false views of God, false views of a Savior is today. You know, I'm not a prophet, and I'm certainly, I'm not, I am certainly not gloom and doom. I'm simply saying that we need to know the Word of God, and we need to be able to stand upon the truth of the word of God, particularly in a culture that believes there are no absolute truths. We need to stand on that truth, the authority of Scripture, the exclusivity of Christ, the person and work of Jesus, salvation in Christ alone when we are defending 
and contending for the gospel. I say this every time. I hope you're not sick of it. But I'm not saying we need to be a jerk for Jesus. I'm not saying we should be self-righteous for Jesus. That we need to stand in Walmart with a megaphone, turn or burn. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? We will have persecution. There has got to be the way that men and women filled of the Spirit of God, standing firm on the Word of God in love. Not moving, standing firm, striving forward in love. In love. Living as citizens worthy of the gospel first requires us to stand together, but yet do it in love. Like an athlete determined to win the game in love. And when we do, we cannot shrink back. We are not to be frightened. We are to have courage in the midst of opposition. Look what it says here, that it is a sign, literally a proof, of not only of their salvation, but of destruction. Again, another military term, to destroy. Christians' fearless testimony and lifestyle was witnesses to the judgment of the opponents and the salvation of believers. It's telling the world as we stand firm, as we strive together, as we hold to the truth, that we love our God and that our life should look differently. 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul writes this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, the perishing, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Dr. Carson writes this, your change in character, he's talking about the sign of destruction and the sign of salvation. Your change in character, your united stand in the defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear for the, for fear, the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. End quote. Paul concludes verse 27. It's verse 28, excuse me. Not be frightened. We're to stand firm, strive for the faith of the gospel. Don't be frightened at anything by your opponents. By standing firm in faith of the gospel is a clear sign to them of their destruction. It's a sign for you, for your salvation. And notice what he says, and that from God. God, sovereignty. Which means we ought to suffer well. And what's interesting about this verse, oh, let me just read it again. For it has been granted to you, plural, y'all, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering for the sake of Christ, uh, uh, and you see in the beginning of the verse, granted to you for the sake of Christ. And what he's saying is the Philippians are willing to suffer because of their love and devotion to Christ, but, it, but it's more than that in this phrase. There is this vicarious nature to it. The Philippians are in some way have been granted to suffer in Christ's stead, in his place. Obviously not salvation, not like we die as an atoning sacrifice for Christ, but Christ is absent and he's been granted to us 
to believe and to suffer in his absence. And the evidence, the sign of the genuine salvation is twofold, believing and suffering. Now, Paul is suffering for the gospel not because he did something wrong. Let's keep that in context. Or some personal agenda. The suffering Paul is referring to is not only the suffering which is in direct relation to to the opposition of the gospel and and, and the faith in believing the gospel, but his suffering and believing is both a matter of grace. In fact, I have the word underlined. You need to underline that word, granted. That's where we get the word grace from. It is a noun, in its noun form, it's used for spiritual gifts, bestowing graciously upon someone. And grace, as we know, is God's unmerited favor. And Paul is literally saying, not only is that gift of God, of faith, a free gift by grace, but, not only believing in him, but suffering is the free gift of God. It's good news, right? In other words, the sign, the evidence, the proof that the Philippians' courageous stand was a sign of their salvation had these twin facts that God's grace was enough for them to believe and God's grace was enough for them to suffer. It came both in believing grace and suffering grace. Let me say that again. The suffering that a person goes through because of their faith is a free gift of God. The suffering, that's what he's saying. Of course, we want to we avoid right, suffering at any cost. Ken Hughes writes this interesting comment. He says, the suffering that comes to a Christian as a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather proof that grace is at work at his, in his or her life, end quote. That's what I came to church to hear. A Christian who's willing to stand up together with other believers of the faith of the gospel can and should expect suffering. It's nothing new. Throughout redemptive history, the, uh, those who teach and believe the word, those who live accordingly to the word, those who hold to the truths of God's word, pay for their courage and steadfastness by persecution, by hatred, all kinds of conflict. Sometimes they're very alive, especially around the world. Maybe not here, but around the world they do. Look at Jesus. Why is suffering a gracious gift? Why, why is suffering? Well, according to this verse, we endure suffering for the sake and glory of Christ and it confirms to us our salvation. Suffering under persecution and doing so while, while, while we cling, while we treasure the beauty and glory of Christ doesn't save you, but it's evidence of your genuine salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, it, it, it's, it's, it's proof of the genuineness of our regenerated and renewed heart. I mean, who, without the work of the Holy Spirit, would endure suffering well? Who would, and when I say well, I mean giving God glory through my persecution, through my suffering, I just want to make Christ known. Who would do that outside of the work of the Holy Spirit? No one. No one. But when we rely upon and we trust God to get us through and we we cling to our greatest treasure, which is Christ, It is a sign to the world of our faith in Christ and all that Christ is and Christ can do. That's why the apostles were persecuted. And during their persecution, they never recounted the truth because they knew the greatest treasure was awaiting them into glory. In Acts chapter 5, 
we see the religious leaders furious, religious leaders of that day furious at the apostles. They kept preaching Christ, preaching Christ, preaching Christ. And in chapter 40, uh, excuse me, in verse 40 of chapter 5 in the book of Acts, in that context, it says they called in all the apostles to their gathering. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Knock it off. Last warning. And the Bible says, and they let them go. Then the next verse says, they left the presence of this council that just beat them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. I'm not making that up. And that's not for the super spiritual. They left rejoicing. Then it says every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's an eye-opener. Let's end with just a couple observations and we'll close. Number one, when Paul talks about suffering in the New Testament, when he's talking about suffering here, and he's talking about his beatings, and he's talking about all the things that he went through, he's not calling evil good, Right? The persecution and hatred and the murdering of suffering of Christians for their faith is not good any more than killing Jesus with some sort of kind act. But God used the violent acts and the sinful rebellion and murder of his son to bring salvation to the world. God can and will use persecution to bring about his glory. Number two, according to this verse... Suffering is a vehicle for making our commitment to Christ real and tangible. Suffering is a way, persecution is a way as we stand and we strive toward the truth and hold to the gospel. There's a, there's a sense in which God will draw near to us as we draw near to him. And what's interesting is Paul, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being beaten for his faith many times, What's interesting to me is that Paul never got to the place of like, you know, middle finger in your face. Like, I'm done with this. I hope you all do go to hell. Like, it never happened. Like, there was still, I'm still going to love people and point them to Jesus. I'm still going to be generous and caring. And I'm going, he got beat up and dragged out of a city and stoned. And I don't mean with a bong. I mean stoned with rocks. And he goes back into the city. You never got to the place like, you know what? I hope the whole place burns down. So there's a way in which we can suffer and still love and ask God for strength. And that could be, you know, we could suffer. It's various, various degrees of suffering and conflict. For some are, are minor. Some are like we're laughed at or disrespected. Some could be very severe. But we can draw near to Christ and the Holy Spirit can pour out of our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, all the fruit of the Spirit. Lastly, suffering is also a means by which we grow in our relationship with God, but it's a process in which we grow together. Paul preached the gospel in Philippi. He was beaten, thrown in jail. He was singing. And now in verse 30, you look at verse 30, Paul is bringing to remembrance, he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In other words, he's saying, listen, we're in this together. There is something very strengthening when we suffer together, when we are in conflict together, when we join arms together and in opposition of the gospel, there's something strengthening when we are suffering together. And Paul is reminding them 
of the conflict that, he, that, he, that they saw that he went through and they hear that he's still going through. They, they knew of his suffering in Philippi and in Rome and he calls on them to share in these sufferings for the sake of the kingdom. They've seen the hardship and now Paul and the church both uh, receiving this gift of suffering want to suffer well. Family, full citizenship involves the grace of believing and the grace of suffering together for the cause of the gospel. So, let, let me ask you, as the band can come on up. Before, before, before we respond in, in music and, and singing, as we respond, in what ways are we not living by the grace of God? Believe me, I, I'm not moralism. This is not a moralistic preaching. I don't believe in it by the fullness and the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency and the satisfaction of Christ, how out of that fullness of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, can we live citizens of another city on this world for the glory and the beauty of the gospel, and his name is Jesus? In what ways can we stand firm, strive together in love, remaining steadfast so that Christ gets glory and that people will see the beauty and glory of Christ and, and, and see how loving and caring and how much he wants all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. So I'm going to leave that with you. You can talk it over with your community groups. I pray that we become a church that is standing firm in love and striving together as a team, even in the midst of conflict for the beauty and glory of Christ. That's, why, that's, the, that's the pastoral prayer for our time together. Lord, that, that is our prayer today. That is our, our hope today, that Lord, as a team, as a community of, of, of people who love Jesus, that we will, we will stand firm, we will strive forward, and we will suffer well um, for your glory, and that we will show forth to the world that we love you, and that you love us, and that you empowered us to suffer for your glory, and that we will cling to, run to, treasure Jesus above all things and that this earth is not our home. Yes, we need to do our part. Yes, we need to be good citizens here. Uh, I, we get that, Lord, but we want to have our eyes fixed upon you as we uh, live out our lives as citizens of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.